to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Yes. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I am not Glenn Packham. Uh, Glenn Packham is, uh, for any of you, especially if you're new here tonight, uh, is the pastor of the Sunday night congregation and is normally here, but his parents are in town and uh, they've been up in the mountains and uh, spending a little time together as a family. And, uh, and so it's my privilege to be here with everyone tonight. And uh, for all of you who are normal Sunday night attenders, um, you might be thinking, oh, sure, Glenn is away, so we throw away the order of service. And uh, you're you're, you're like jittering because we haven't taken communion yet and, and things like that. We have not forgotten. Um, and, and so because of the talk tonight and where we're going throughout the next several minutes uh, together, um, we'll be doing confession and communion uh, and the Lord's Prayer at uh, the end of the service. And, um, and so, so you can calm down just a little bit and not be texting Glenn thinking that, you know, while the cat is away, the mice will play. And so... Um, uh, it, uh, it, this series that, that you guys have been in um, as, as a, a community here is called As We Gather, and um, I really love what, what, what you guys are talking about and the idea of really asking the questions, why do we gather? Why do we gather as the body of believers? Why is it important that we stop our daily activity, stop what, our, what we're doing on Sundays, stop what we're doing to come together as the body of Christ. Why do we go to church? What are the values of these types of rhythms? Not only the rhythm of just coming, but also, also then the rhythms that happen within the service. And uh, not only in this service, but in other services um, and services held around the world, there's lots and lots of different particular traditions, and uh, over the last couple of weeks, last week Glenn talked about uh, the value or the necessity of praying together, uh, talked about worship, why do we come together to worship, and, uh, and so tonight we're jumping into and going to be talking about uh, the value, the practice, and the power of confession. Why do we confess? What is, what, what do we do? Why are we doing that? Why do we do that as a body of believers? Why do we do that together? when we uh, come to worship. Now, I grew up in a non-denominational churches just about all of my life. Um, actually, New Life being the one predominantly. Uh, been coming to New Life, except for a stint away for college, uh, since I was 12 years old, which for some of you might think was just like four or five years ago, but um, I actually turned 38 this summer, and um, so... Hard to believe that I'm about to uh, enter, or maybe I am in. I don't know. I should just embrace the fact that I'm almost a middle-aged man. And so, um, so anyway, uh, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm trying to pick out a sports car, you know. Anyway, um, so so I grew up. I grew up in non-denominational church, and in non-denominational church, certainly every church has its liturgy, its its order of service. But most non-denominational churches have a, an order of service that doesn't usually include a lot of historical liturgy. 
Uh, historical liturgy would include communion. Now, you might, I've been a part of service where you have communion every once in a while, but certainly not every week. Um, to recite the Nicene Creed was not something that I, I don't think, I don't remember ever doing that when I was growing up going to church. And, and so it's just been in the last several years that I, I feel like in some ways I've been reawakened or awakened maybe for the first time, I should say, to some of these practices. And having grown up in a non-denominational setting, uh, I actually very subtly was probably was taught or at least picked up on the thought that any sort of just traditional church that did go through some sort of historical liturgy, like repeating the Nicene Creed together, was somehow dead. That they were just repeating old sayings and, you know, they were stuck in the past and that kind of thing. And, and as I have gotten older and wiser, I have realized that, those, that that understanding or that idea of historical liturgy is not true. And so in the last few years, I've been, I've embraced, and I lead the Mill uh, College of 20-something service on Friday nights. Every week we have some form of liturgy. Um, we repeat, re- repeat the Nicene Creed. We'll repeat confessional prayers together. we we'll do the Lord's Prayer together. Um, it's not necessarily the same every week, but it is something every week. And, and it is a lot of things that in the past I would have thought, oh, what do we need to do that for? We just need to be spontaneous, whatever's in your heart. And I know Glenn talked a little bit more about that last week, so I'm not going to dive into those ideas right now. But, but now, that, now that I'm kind of coming back around some of these beautiful and wonderfully old and profoundly rich ideas, I have found people saying to me, wow, Aaron, that's really cute. You know, oh, what, you know what is old is now new to you, and so, you know, you're just kind of coming around, you know, and they, it's almost like this, you know, older couple, the... the, the, the you know, the wife leans over to the husband, you know, hey, George, isn't it awesome? You know, it's really cute. Look at Aaron. He's just kind of like finding out about these old things. You know, we've been doing them. We don't do those anymore because we grew up in those traditional things, and now we found the Spirit. And, and I, I would like to think that it is more than just being trendy, that to somehow now repeat this Nicene Creed is this trendy new thing, that it's, it's cool to be retro, you know, that there is something actually much more profound about some of these historical pieces of liturgy that the church has been practicing and doing for not just hundreds, but thousands of years. For, I mean, the Nicene Creed was written over 1,700 years ago, and so it's, it's, we're talking a long, long time, and a lot of people reciting this. And so for us to somehow, maybe whether it's now as a 21st century Christian or just in the last couple hundred years to just say, oh yeah, well, we don't need any of that, is maybe a little arrogant. And, and, it's, and, I, 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 and so, so I'd like to talk just to briefly tonight about one aspect of that that I think is really important and goes much deeper than just acute re-engaging of something old because it's trendy. And it's the topic of confession. Um, Glenn and I didn't plan this when he had uh, asked that I come and talk about this several months ago, but, but uh, this is a topic that's close to my heart, something that I've been thinking about, praying about, and writing about for the last couple of years. And uh, just so happened that as this worked out, um, that a book that I just wrote just came out. And so I, I was kind of 
uh, excited about some of the ways in which that came across. And, and it came out of a series that we did at the mill called What's Your Secret? And uh, it really was a re-examining of this idea of confession. And I don't know what comes to your mind, and, and maybe it's something different that comes to your mind because you're a part of this Sunday night congregation and because corporate and silent confession is a weekly practice here. But for oft, often when I might ask people, what's, your, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of confession? And the first thing out of their mouth is this wooden box that's in the side of some sort of older Catholic church and with this little screen in between. And you go in, and, and, and you sit there, and there's a priest on the other side that might say, um, how long since your last confession? And they would say, well, it's been a couple of years, Father. And, and they say, well, what is it that you want to confess? And they kind of give this short little confession of what they've done since they've been there. And now, I've never actually participated in one of these actual confessional booths a, a few years, actually a few years ago. Twelve years ago, my wife and I <laughs> went on a vacation around Europe and, and visited a lifetime's worth of cathedrals and saw these wooden confessionals. And I had only, I've only seen them actually in use in movies. And, uh, you know, it's usually it's some sort of criminal that's on the run and he's trying to hide, and so he goes in. And, you know, unbeknownst to him, there's a priest on the other side, and the priest asks him, what's his, what's, what does he want to confess? And he starts to, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't want to get caught, so he's making something up or confessing something real or whatever. But, but, but those confessional booths actually um, were started within churches and put into, into Catholic churches only in the 1500s, 1577 to be exact. And um, so though they're a fairly new uh, fixture within Catholic churches, it, the idea of confession is certainly much older than that. And being a part of a non-denominational, let alone a Protestant church, um, I think, I wonder if, if the idea of confession has lost some traction with us. And, and it's not something that we're trained in. It's not something that we're used to seeing. You walk into the Catholic church, you see the confessional booth, you know what it is from a, being a little kid. And it was actually in the second century that uh, the idea of confession and confession with a, a, a pastor or a priest was, was initiated, and it was throughout, thank you, Tyler, it was throughout the centuries then that, that what happened was a lot of these confessional practices started getting attached to penance. In other words, well, I, I did this, okay? Um, well, since you did that, then uh, this is what you're going to have to do in order to um, kind of earn your way back in, or at least pay for that sin. Um, and oftentimes, it was actually tied to communion. And so, uh, so if you, whatever you did, well, you cannot practice communion or participate in communion for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And if it was some sort of egregious sin, actually even uh, oftentimes given a penance or a punishment of years worth of inability uh, to participate in the Eucharist. And so, and then, of course, many of us might know about uh, the things that were happening that were kind of swirling right before the Reformation. Uh, and, and a lot of the idea of penance was then pay, you know, you had pay indulgences. And so, 
So this whole idea of confession is, starts to get convoluted, starts to take on some corruption within the church. And of course, it was then the Reformation that starts to break some of those things down. And we get sola scriptura. We get a lot of, okay, the individual can, can uh, engage the Lord. We don't need a priest. And a lot of the Catholic kind of traditions are broken down. And, and the Reformation, in a lot of wonderful ways, has established some great things within our gatherings, but at the same time, I wonder if we haven't thrown the baby out with the bathwater. That in an attempt to address some of the corruption, in an attempt to address some of the ways in which it was abused or misused, that we've thrown the practice out. And in so doing, have we maybe then become a community of secret keepers? Have we become a community that's supposed to not keep secrets, but to be a community of confession, and we become a community of secret keepers? The big question that I would pose to you for this evening is, what is it that no one else knows about you? What is it that no one else knows is in your heart? What sin, what fear, what past event. Maybe it was not something that you've done, but it's something that was done to you. What is in there that nobody knows? Something that you're hoping that no one ever, ever finds out. Because if everybody, if anybody ever found out, you think it would be the end of you. And you're hoping that if you can just bury it or push it into the corner of your heart and your life, and it will just go away. If we can bury it long enough, then, 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 then we'll be fine. But if it ever gets out, it's the end. The, the problem is, is that secrets grow in the dark. And secrets can destroy us. We probably all, probably every single one of us could go around and share a story of somebody's secret, whether your own or somebody else's, that has had a dramatic impact on your life. My wife came home from high school one day and her mom was sitting at the table, her dad was sitting uh, across the room, and, she, and her mom, teary-eyed, she could tell something was dramatically wrong, said, Jossie, I need you to sit down, I have something to tell you. And her dad said, I'm leaving. And over the next several months, secrets start to come out about this double life that her dad was leading. That secret that was in her dad's life and in his heart destroyed their family. It took her years to rebuild trust. I had to, I, w- I, w- I was impacted. I even wasn't there. I didn't even know her at the time, but I was impacted by her lack of trust built into her or, ca- or kind of facilitated by a broken relationship by her dad. We know of pastors that have had secrets We know of presidents that have had secrets. We hear stories on a very regular basis about CEOs and accountants and people who hold purse strings that have secrets. And we might hear of big secrets like like CEOs of companies, and we might know of little secrets of holding things between friends. But what if we lived a secret-free life? What if we really didn't have any secrets? I read a statistic a while ago that 
in prisons, the, if they were to do a survey, or maybe they have done, they actually they have done a survey, and I don't know if this has to do with their incoming records that they would fill out if this was an actual, like, going through, uh, in, you know, entrance papers as they go into prison, or if this is just some sort of informal sur- survey, but, but the fewest number of people in prison have a Catholic background. And maybe that is because they have had some sort of exposure to confession. What if the thing that we think will take us down will actually lead us to life? What if the thing that scares us the most actually will bring about healing? Uh, An Orthodox priest was once asked, how do you do spiritual formation or discipleship? How do you how do you help the people in your congregation and in this Orthodox church that this particular Orthodox priest was leading? How do, you, how do you disciple your people? How do you help them form spiritually and grow, put down roots, produce fruit? He said, in a word, repentance. He said, we repent regularly. I encourage them, let's repent, let's confess. And he said, the reason is, is because if we're confessing and repenting regularly, what happens is, is that we will start often, if we only repent ever and confess every now and then, or every once in a blue moon, then he said, we'll, we'll think of the things that we just did wrong. Well, I, I cheated on a test, or I lied to this person, or I had a bad attitude, or whatever it might be. But he said, if you're confessing on a regular basis, like very regular. He said, what happens is you'll get beyond the, this is what I did yesterday, and this is what I did last week, and this is what I did last month, and I'm sorry for that, God. And he said, you'll start to get below those things. And you'll start to address some of the issues that feed the issues that you were confessing in the first place. And so somebody might say, well, God, I'm confessing the fact that I looked at some pornography on the internet. It's worth confessing for sure. But what if you got below that? What if you got beneath that? to confess that you desire to be in control, and this is one way that you're exhibiting that. And what if you got beneath that and you said, God, I realize that this is a fear that I, of what would happen if I'm not in control. Or what if you stole something? So you say, I stole this, but what if you got beneath that and you said, and you realize that you're confessing the sin of greed, that there's something in there that you want more and you want to accumulate more, but maybe even beneath that, you get to the place where you say, God, I realize that I don't think you will provide for me. What if regular confession gets us down into the deep, dark portions of our hearts? Not just on the top, on the surface, but gets beneath them, below them, to the fears that drive the things that we might do, to the temptations, to the insecurities. What if we can get beneath them and you think, oh, well, that sounds really awesome. I mean, I, I, to mine the depths of my heart, that's awesome. You know, to, to run around in the, in the darkness and the dankness of my heart, I don't know about that. Thanks a lot. This is really encouraging. That sounds sweet. Yeah, let's do that. See, but I think that confession does something. It, it acknowledges our inadequacy. It acknowledges the fact that we are sinful, broken people. We live in a broken world. Though we may have submitted our hearts and our lives to Jesus, we still live in a broken world. Therefore, we have things that can fester and grow in our hearts. Glenn said last week when he was talking about prayer and why do we need to learn how to pray is because if, we le- if left to ourselves, 
our, our mother tongue is selfishness. So left to ourselves without learning how to pray, we're going to pray selfish prayers. But what if our nature is pride? And so to combat that is to confess because in confession it brings us to a place of humility. Because when we say, oh man, this is who I am. Wow, I really stink. I am, man, I, I got, look at this. Blah brings you to a place of humility. Now the goal is not that we would just say, oh, look how bad I am. I'm just a horrible sinner and I'm just so bad. I'm so bad. I'm so bad that we just get beat down and I'm just a pathetic, pathetic Christian. I barely make it. I'm barely a human being. I'm a disaster of a person. It's not the goal. The goal, though, is that as we recognize our inadequacy, as we recognize that we are needy, that we need someone. As we recognize our inadequacy, we will recognize and should lead us to a place of dependence. That we need Jesus. So confession acknowledges our inadequacy, but it also declares God's mercy. See, because we're not just going just to confess, just to put it out there so we can wallow in this junk that comes out of our hearts and out of our lives. But instead, to say, God, I need you. And I need your mercy. I need you to do something powerful and profound in my heart. See, if we just leave it at, oh, I'm such a horrible sinner, then it really is all about us. I want to read a story to you about this from the 1930s. It says, One Sunday afternoon in the 1930s in a little parish in Germany where he was a pastor, Father Haring was leading the customary Sunday afternoon parish Vesper service with religious instruction and benediction. This particular Sunday he was talking about confession. He asked the question, What is the most important thing about confession? A woman in the front pew responded, Telling your sins to the priest. That's why we call it confession. Father Haring said, Confess... Confessing the sins is important, but it's not the most important thing. A man towards the back called out, Contrition! Being sorry for your sins. The whole thing doesn't work without contrition. Father Haring said, True, it doesn't work without contrition. But I don't think contrition is the most important thing. A man over on St. Joseph's side spoke up, It's the examination of conscience. Unless you examine your conscience, you don't know what you have to be sorry for and what to confess. Father Haring still wasn't satisfied, and an uneasy silence fell over the church. Then a little girl in the second pew said, Father, I know what is most important. It's what Jesus does. It's what Jesus does. That's the most important thing, the thing we should focus upon. The examination of conscience, sorrow for sin, telling the sins to the priest, these are all important but you'll have a more positive experience of the sacrament if your focus is on what Jesus does. Jesus, Jesus in His mercy and grace came for us so that why? Die for our sins so that our sins might be taken from us. That we might be washed clean. It's more about Jesus than it is about us. But it is in us looking into the inadequacy of our own hearts that we are able to experience Jesus in His fullness. Now, I don't think we like that. 
I don't think we like the idea of seeing different things in our hearts or even the Holy Spirit maybe convicting us of things. Not too long ago, I was talking with somebody about the idea of conviction. And the, the Holy Spirit had convicted them of a few different things in their hearts. And I said, wow, what a wonderful gift. And he was like, what? A wonderful gift? Are you kidding me? Like, this is terrible. Like, I am this. And I said, it's a wonderful gift because it gives you an opportunity to experience the grace of God in a brand new way. What a wonderful gift. What a wonderful gift. It might not be the way that you'd like to get there, but look at it as an opportunity. When you find things in your heart, when you mine the depths of your heart and see the fears and the insecurities and the the greed and the pride and the selfishness and the different things that the Lord loves to work out of us as a wonderful opportunity and a gift to experience the grace of God. Maybe in coming to a greater sense of our inadequacy, it leads us to a place where Paul talks about, in my weakness, he is made strong. Our culture says, be strong at all costs. Don't look weak. Our culture says, don't admit weakness. Act as if you don't have any. And if you have some, you better get rid of them as quickly as possible. I'm not sure that that's what the Scripture says. Yes, submit them to the Lord. Give them to the Holy Spirit. Ask Him to refine us, sanctify us, do something powerful in us, produce the fruits of the Spirit, and not the fruits and the desires of our selfish nature inside of us? Absolutely. But maybe we need to reshape our imaginations in regards to what we do and how, what it means to be weak. What if we were able to recognize that in our brokenness and in our need for Jesus, He is made strong? What if we were to wrap our lives and bend our lives around Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, where it says, Just as you received Christ Jesus... You receive him by saying, I need you. I am in need of a savior. I need rescuing. Help me. I can't do this on my own. Just as you received Christ Jesus, just like that, continue to live in him. Live in him, saying every day, I need you, Jesus. I need you, Jesus. I can't do this. Today is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday, the day that we celebrate the giving of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church, us living empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit. So for us to say, I need you, Jesus, is not just, oh, I hope I make it. It's the Holy Spirit inside of us. See, this isn't a, God, I beg you for mercy. I beg you for help. I beg you that you just don't squash me like a bug. This is instead saying, I know that you are a merciful Father. I come to you not begging for mercy, but knowing you are merciful knowing that you are full of mercy and grace. And so, Hebrews 4, I can come boldly to the throne of grace. It's not a reminder of how terrible we are, but a reminder of our need for grace and God having done something about the sinfulness of our hearts and the evil of our world. Confession is about acknowledging our inadequacy. Confession then is in a declaring of God's mercy. And so then the question, and really wanted to start with all of that to then get to the place where we say, okay, well, what about doing this corporately? Why do we say this together, a corporate confession? And it's behind this idea, and that is the fact that confession is about, about more than just you. 
your confession is also about me. My confession is also about you. See, because we are a part of a body. We're a part of a, of a, a unit. And it's more than just a social club. There's something deeper, there's something greater. And so my confession or lack of confession impacts you. And your confession or lack of confession is also has an impact on me. And we just like to think, oh, it's just between me and God. First, first John 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and He's just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Okay, just need to confess my sins to God. If I confess, especially, you know, for salvation, just as I receive Christ Jesus, okay, so just me and God. If I just, okay, God, hey, look what I did. I'm sorry, I did this, did this, did this. So silent confession every week is really helpful. That's nice. But, you know, I don't know about this corporate thing. I guess it's good for us to say it. But I wonder if the lack of practicing this sacrament, this idea of of confession has led to some of the dysfunction or the anemia within the body of Christ. That the body of Christ isn't actually functioning maybe fully operational as the body of Christ because secrets fragment. Secrets pull us apart. Secrets keep us from growing fully together. I don't know if any of you have ever seen this before, but this is the, uh, there was a a project done several years ago by a guy named Frank Warren, um, and it's now called Post Secret. Uh, but what he did is he decided that he wanted to give people an opportunity, he's not a Christian, wanted to give people the opportunity to confess their secrets, um, or at least have an avenue to be able to confess their secrets. And so what he did is he made up some postcards and, um, and placed them throughout the, in different random public places. He would put them in library books, he'd leave them on Starbucks tables, he'd leave them on benches, and things like that. And on there were some instructions, and those instructions said something along the lines of, confess your secret, and what is it, you know, some, put something on here that you've never told anybody, um, and be as artistic as you'd like. So he was encouraging this kind of artistic expression of the things that were inside of their hearts. Well, somehow, this caught, it, it, it caught, uh, caught fire, really. And not only did, I think he made like a thousand or a couple thousand of these and placed them throughout New York City. But it somehow caught on. And people started to find the address and just send them anonymously. And over the course of several years, he received over 300,000 postcards. He receives even now today a couple hundred postcards a day. And, and now he, um, he puts together and compiles books called Post Secret. And in these books, he just puts people's secrets. And um, they're totally anonymous. They're artistic. He travels around the country posting and highlighting these, these different secrets. He calls it an art exhibit. Totally anonymous. Let me just read a couple of them to you. I wish I had just one talent. Fear. An insecurity. Sometimes I wish I didn't believe so I could stop feeling like I'm just disappointing him. Talking about God. I like this one. In elementary school, I started lying and telling everybody I was allergic to peanuts. This is my first peanut butter cup in years. I had to eat it in my car so my fiancé wouldn't see. He thinks I'm allergic to them too. Made it up. It's not in this book, but it's a different one. I think there's maybe like at least five, if not maybe ten of these books with compilations. And um, 
and it's written on a Starbucks sleeve, and, and it says, I give decaf to customers who are rude to me. <laughs> Be especially nice to your Starbucks barista. This one says, I'm a cheerleader, but secretly I deal drugs. I can't stand my roommate. I cheated my way through paramedic school. I wouldn't like that person to come pick me up if I was in an accident. But there was something, I think, about this little project, big project now, that has caught fire, that has caught on. And I think, in some ways, he, he, he touched a nerve. This desire to have everything out there, to unload what's in, every, in your heart. But I think it's incomplete. Because we can think, okay, well, as a Christian, I just unload these things in my heart to God, and I'm, I'm finished. Or maybe I write it on a card anonymously, and I send it in, and maybe it makes it into a book. Or, but I, I don't think that God has called us into confession anonymously, that the U.S. Postal Service is the direction that we're supposed to go when we're wanting to confess something. And though it might be a baby step, it might be something valuable, maybe... Maybe that would be a good step towards something. It is towards something. What God has in mind is something bigger and something better. In James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Ho, 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 ho. We just went from confess to God in the privacy of my own heart and head and maybe my own house by myself buried in the back of my closet so that nobody even knows that I'm thinking about this because if I think it too loud, somebody else might pick it up to telling someone else, like real words coming out of my real mouth that they can understand, and then they will know what is in here. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, when I first read that, I thought, okay, so it says that, and it says you're going to be healed, but isn't Jesus the healer? Why in the world do I need to Bring it to someone else to be healed. Can I just ask Jesus for healing for this thing that's in my heart and growing and could potentially cause a lot of damage? Can't I just leave it with Jesus? And so I think it's important that we look at some of the context here in James chapter 5. The couple of verses right before this says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Are you sick? Sure, you can pray to God and ask God for healing, but he's saying, invite the elders, invite other people into this. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. I think what James is saying here is not that Jesus is not the healer. What he's saying is, I want you to allow the body of Christ to be a part of your healing. And so by confessing to one another, bringing the things out of your hearts and actually putting them into words and letting somebody else hear them and that go into their ears is allowing the body of Christ to be a part of your healing, your growth, and your maturity in Him. So confession is not just about you. It's about me. It's about all of us. And when we tell this, it's not just a matter of, oh, well, I guess I'll just put it on my Facebook status. I'll just update it, and i just put it out there, you know. Blog it or 
randomly tell it. I was talking to someone just earlier tonight. And they said, it was when, they were telling me a story about confession, and they said, it was when I talked to someone who mattered. A person maybe who, who isn't just your buddy. It's like a bunch of guys who tell each other they're, he goes, I got to tell you something. I'm struggling with pornography. And they're all like, oh yeah, me too. Oh yeah, me too. Okay, cool. What are you going to do about that? I don't know. But what if you tell somebody that has some sort of authority, or some sort of experience in overcoming some of that, or whatever it might be? What if you tell somebody that matters? Somehow it's easier to tell someone else that maybe can't do a whole lot. Maybe it's really scary when you tell somebody that somehow maybe you would disappoint, or at least you feel like you would disappoint them. And you tell someone else that matters. And there's a lot of wisdom. We won't go into that right now. But there's some different people you should tell and there's other people you shouldn't tell. But this confession isn't just a transference of data. I think it's the difference between vulnerability and transparency. You ever heard the definition or difference in definition? Vulner- uh, transparency is just the transference of data. I did this. And you're like, oh, okay. And it's, it just feels like you just received a TPS report. And you're like, hmm, okay, thank you. But really, they're just like, here you go, and then they go like that. Vulnerability is the transference or the telling or the communication of information and saying, please help me. Transference of information with the welcoming, I want to welcome you, I need to welcome you into this. I need you to help me do this. Walk out of this. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 says, whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Finds mercy. What are we to do? Run to the throne of grace with boldness so we can find mercy. How do we do that? Certainly by ourselves. Certainly in moments of silence, but also with one another. Frederick Buchner, he's one of my favorite authors. He wrote in one of his autobiographies, he had a set of, uh, kind of a trilogy autobiography, and he says, I not only have secrets, I am my secrets. And you are your secrets. Our secrets are human secrets, and our trusting each other enough to share them with each other has much to do with the secret of what it is to be human. That us knowing one another, fully knowing one another, and loving one another, and extending grace to one another, and walking with one another, and praying for one another. James 5.16. Why? So that the prayers of a Righteous man, powerful and effective. We need to pray for one another. Pray with one another. Support one another. See, because without confession, we hinder relationships. Relationships either stay broken or cannot move forward without confession. Because without confession, then we are not fully known. Lacking confession in our lives, I think, hinders, fragments, and has a pretty dramatic impact on our relationship with God and with others. Our relationships will grow in full disclosure. If you're in here tonight and you feel like, you know, and you say, you know what, I don't have any secrets. My guess is that if you don't have any secrets, you probably have some really strong relationships. If the secrets that you have in your heart have been told to the people who matter, the right people. 
because there is this desire and God-given need within all of us to be known, to be fully known. And that is why in a service like this and has been done for the last, for several hundred years, it's a confession, both private, both private and then corporate, is done before communion. Confession, then communion. Put it all out there, and then communion with God. So that what is happening is you're saying, putting it all out there, and then I need to be back in and restored in relationship with God and with others. It's a reminder. It's a weekly reminder. And you might say, okay, so am I supposed to, in this service, go to somebody and just like pour it out? And am I supposed to yell it during the silent time? You know, like, hey, everybody, guess what I did? I don't think so. Actually, I know so. Please don't do that. But what I do think it is, is that the reason that we do this is I don't think that we have a natural proclivity towards confession. We have a natural tendency towards self-preservation. We have a natural tendency towards keeping things inside and looking strong. And so what this does on a weekly basis when we come in to have corporate confession together is it reminds us. It's a reminder of the fact that we need Jesus and we need each other. That we do this before God silently, that we take some time and say, God, this is what happened this week. This is what I did. I can't believe this is in here. It just came out. And then we say it together as a reminder that we belong to one another. As a reminder that my confession or lack of confession impacts you and vice versa. And we need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. We all need to be reminded of the things that are inside of us. Ultimately, so that we can remember who, how gracious and merciful God is. And the more that we were reminded of, the, of our brokenness, the more that we were able to identify with the brokenness of the world and the people around us and ultimately point them towards the supremacy and the mercy of God.